I'm Natasha, and I'm Red. And together we are Syllogism, a science, culture, and philosophy challenge podcast on the edge of chaos. This season, we'll invite guests of varying expertise to playfully investigate Howard Gardner's theory of multiple intelligences. Each episode will explore a particular type of intelligence according to Gardner. We've invited Dr. Matt Brown from Decoding the Gurus podcast to help us sort out Gardner's theory. This week's challenge was to record our feelings three times a day for a week. To help us assess our intrapersonal intelligence, we brought in Colleen Star Koch, founder of Rowan Coaching. Colleen brings neuroscience-informed executive-level coaching to all kinds of folks so they can unlearn limiting narratives and develop self-knowledge. And she's actually someone who helped me start down the path that would eventually lead me to this podcast. For more about our guest and additional resources, check out our newsletter at theorygang.io forward slash newsletter. Enjoy. Yes, baby. Yes. Now, would you mind doing an intro? I want to make sure that I got everybody's names and everything. Okay, so this is not Jism Hawk. This is Brett. <laughs> hey, what's up? Colleen, Brett knows about you. I've told him how awesome you are and how you are really a big part of why I'm now doing this podcast. Which I love. So. I love to hear that. And, you know, it was, it was so funny to um, just kind of catch up whenever that was a couple of weeks ago and kind of hear you say that because it's one of the things that, that I've definitely learned through coaching is that you cannot define your value to someone else. Clients come back to me and say things that just, I don't know, it's just so nice to hear. It's that it's always that distinction between what you think is happening and what's actually happening when it comes to that interpersonal connection. I know what you mean when you say you can't define your value to other people. Sometimes you can, but sometimes even just telling people what you think your value is, it negates mm -hmm. the value. And I'm talking about this in like a, a transactional kind of a way where you coached me for a little while and I wasn't quite sure I was ready or I was getting what I needed to get or I was doing what I needed to do. I was stuck in a place where I didn't know if this was actually doing yeah. anything. And so there was a lot of like internal workings going on that you kind of poked on quite yeah. a bit. And so you can't always see the product of what you're yeah. doing. And I think our podcast is very much the same yeah. way in that a lot of times we're poking and prodding and people walk away going, what the fuck? They Sometimes they don't know how they feel or what they think. But I know I did my job if there's some kind of like wheels turning. And that's like the only outcome we get. I have a, a thing that I do that's built in now to my coaching sessions because I have like a sort of a template for session notes. And at the end of it, I always have a prompt that's called value claiming, which is where I literally ask my client, what do you choose to take away from today's session? You never know what filters anything that you're sending their way is going through how it's being perceived, whether or not it's helpful. And I've, I've had whole sessions where I got to the end of the session and I felt like we just had a really great conversation. And I'll get out of one of those really cool, brilliant people conversations and be thinking there wasn't a lot of like actionable tools or anything like that. And then we'll do the value claiming and they'll say, oh my God, this piece right here just completely unlocked something for me that I've been stuck on for like three years. It's not always reflected in the moment because to your point, it's just, you're getting the wheels clicking. You guys and I are doing the same thing. 
the definition of coaching that I use is facilitating thinking in others, creating a space where people can safely do that intrapersonal learning. But the, the biggest part of it is just facilitating their thinking because what you are trying to help people do is gain access to their own minds, which is the only way that they're going to get wherever they're trying to go or become whoever they're trying to be. It would be like if somebody asked you for directions on a road trip and you had never been to that place and you had never seen all of the roads and you, you giving that person a map is basically irresponsible. You've never been there. Don't do that. Mm, so you're exploring with them. So I had a question for you a while back when we were working together. What's the difference between coaching and therapy? Because I've had both now and I've had several therapists, but only you as a coach. My therapists have always been helping me work through problem-based stuff. Whereas I feel like you helped me figure out what I want. With you, my mind was focused into where I wanted to go. And in therapy, my mind was focused kind of in mm -hmm. here. Yeah. The best way that I can put this is that therapy and coaching, I think in a lot of really fundamental ways are the same thing, but facing two different directions. Therapy tends to be more, more oriented towards the past in order to sort of identify wounds and heal them so that they are not unconsciously impacting how you feel or how you behave in the present. Well, and but then that transformation would also lend itself to something in the Absolutely. future. Absolutely, it does. It's a different sort of approach to it, right? So the therapeutic part is really explicitly about looking for those wounds and, and doing that healing so that whatever you're doing in the present towards the future is not unconsciously impacted by things that you're not aware of or don't have control over or don't want to be influencing your future. And coaching, on the other hand, is much more future-focused and much more action-oriented. The action in therapy is think about it. <laughs> and maybe there's some kind of practices that you want to put into place to help you make that self-reflection more habitual. Coaching is much more future focused. Let's say you're coming to me and you're like, I've always wanted to do this thing, but I'm really feeling stuck around it and I'm having trouble getting motivated or something like that, right? I might ask you a question like, where have you been really motivated? Where have you experienced really true natural motivation, right? And then I'm facilitating thinking where I'm kind of asking, what was the context? What was around you at the time? What people, what was your physical environment? Were you living somewhere that's cloudy and rainy all the time if that's not what your body needs? Like, I mean, there's all kinds of things you can look into, right? <laughs> the other distinction that is important is that a coach is not and should not be doing clinical diagnostic work. One of the ways that I can usually assess is whether CBT style stuff, cognitive behavioral therapy type stuff works for them or impacts them. Mm. If you can coach someone into doing something maybe that they're struggling with, and that struggle has something that ties to the past, you might be able to leapfrog over some of the diagnostic, diagnostic stuff. Well, I mean, you know, I kind of think of it like two sides of a coin, right? You can think right. of the two sides of the coin as like just standing upright, and one is facing this way and one is facing that way. But at a certain point, you can spin the coin, right? Mm. right. I find that coaching can be a really good access point for people who need to do some kind of therapeutic processing, but are not prepared to tell themselves that they need therapy. 
I have a ton of people who come to me for brain-based career coaching, and we end up getting into a whole bunch of basically therapeutic conversations, things about them interpersonally, things that they're going to need to work on in themselves in order to get to wherever they want to go. And they love it. And it's super helpful, but it would have taken them much more time to go to a therapist to get that same kind of work done. Interesting. So I want to read something as to what Gardner says about intrapersonal intelligence in his mm -hmm. book. And he uses Virginia Woolf as an example of someone who has a lot of intrapersonal intelligence. He quotes her in her writing where she says, the shock receiving capacity is what makes me a writer. So he's basically saying that her ability to take things in from the mm -hmm. world and deal with them and manage them is what makes her intrapersonally intelligent. And he says a bunch of other stuff. So let me read to you a little bit of what he says. He says that knowledge of the internal aspects of a person, access to one's own feeling life, one's range of emotions, and the capacity to make discriminations amongst these, label them and draw on them as a means of understanding and guiding one's own behavior. So he's trying to kind of nail down what he considers intrapersonal intelligence. But here's the issue I have with Gardner in his definition. The next line he says, a person with good intrapersonal intelligence has a viable and effective model of him or herself consistent with a description constructed by careful observers. <laughs> so he's saying that the, in his kind of I want to call it pseudoscientific way. He's kind of saying like, okay, well, your control is what other people think about you. And we just got done talking about how you can't go based on what other people think about you. That's not your value. It's certainly not how you view yourself and how you manage your own emotions. But right. I would say this, this is a very solipsistic kind of a thing, intrapersonal intelligence, because only you can really know if you're able to understand your own emotions and then regulate them towards the environment for the outcomes that you seek. I don't, I have to disagree with that, actually. I really have to disagree with that. And I can see where you're coming from there. And, and we did have that whole thing that we just said, right? You can never know someone's inner life and all of the complexity of that. And I do definitely believe that. But these feel like two different conversations to me. First of all, it would be pretty hard for me to have a job if it wasn't possible to tell whether or not someone has intrapersonal intelligence from the outside. That's a huge amount of what I do. And the evidence of intrapersonal intelligence, it's not so much about can you tell exactly what's in someone's mind. I think the external evidence of intrapersonal intelligence is more the impact of it. I'll give you an example. I mean, in coaching, I can, I, it's definitely something that you can tell through conversation and through exposure to a person when they are avoiding something that they know about themselves, because that's going to lead to some decision-making that they're not ready to make. But I'm talking about other places. One is kids. Is your kid not just an insanely accurate mirror of your internal state that's just like a huge invitation to your own growth because you know oh, yeah. i mean with my kid when i'm feeling whatever set of challenging feelings i'm feeling if i'm not dealing with it if i'm not doing my own work and processing that my kid slowly starts to go off the rails and you can just mm. see it and it's not like he's over there having a conversation with me mama i think you're struggling <laughs> <laughs> no it's not literally 
you know, maybe it all comes down to mirror neurons or something to our ability to, to empathize. I read about a study years ago. I pissed off a lot of my scientific friends because I have a kind of memory that remembers information in terms of like how it all ties together. And I don't remember like names <laughs> and dates and things like that. But the outcome was that if you have two people standing next to each other and one of them is repressing their emotions, particularly if it's a strong negative emotion like anger, the other person's blood pressure goes up. Mm -hmm, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So I think even like evolutionarily, we have some skill in assessing whether people are good at handling themselves in whatever way. Like that's, that's a lot of what interpersonal intelligence is, right? Because the thing is, the less interpersonal intelligence you have, the more unconsciously you spew all of that shit into your environment. <laughs> it's like toxic waste, absolutely. That's almost anyone who's extraordinarily domineering, people who throw yeah. tantrums in public for all kinds of right? reasons. You know. But also just, <laughs> honestly, I, I'm not going to try and throw a whole sex under the bus here, but I am a little bit. Men, this is a big thing. And I'm not blaming this, by the way. I want to be really clear. I'm not blaming this on individual men. This is the way that men are cultured. Men are cultured that they're not allowed to have feelings. And that the only acceptable feelings are like enthusiasm, like sports and stuff like that, or anger, or like excitement. They can have strong positive ones, but in terms of negative, they they can have anger, right? I think I I just want to take issue with you on that real yeah. quick because I think men simply experience emotions differently, and it is the grossest mistake of current psychology to look at men. And think they are just women who need to be who need to be trained to behave and emote the way that women do. Men do not experience tremendous amounts of negative emotion. We are typically more stable. And when we do, <laughs> it is explosive because there is only this one kind of little bit of range. We are more positive. It is well known that women tend more to experience negative emotion. The ways in which we think about ourselves and our relationships to others are different. Men have a lot more testosterone, and testosterone is an activating hormone, so it pushes you to action. And so men oftentimes want to go straight into fix-it mode or act or whatever that is, and it could be in part at least a consequence of not only the bath of testosterone they get all the time, but the bath of testosterone they were basically cultivated and raised in. So their I'm brain is sitting in a tub of testosterone right now. <laughs> right. So it may be more or less hardwired, or let's call it like a soft hardwiring, that they are propelled to action and therefore more like a blunt force instrument. So I think they don't experience as much low valence emotion as women do. And I think they don't experience the cyclicity of emotion that women do. This is just Again, hormone studies. Women, right. because of our ovaries that are pulsating and releasing hormones and our hypothalamus, we go through tumult and it, and it fucking sucks, but it's just kind of a lot of highs and lows. And this is um, why I would contend that re reasoning back from what you see in the world and then thinking that it's culture is, is not that nothing cultural has an impact. But it's a mistake to ignore that there are foundational differences and there's a reason that you see those things in the culture and you see them across every culture. There are definitely 
distinctions between men and women biologically when it comes to our emotional state. There are so many other ways that we can look at this, right? Because I think that you looking at the the world and history and saying, well, this is something that's common to men historically, this is common to men globally. I don't think that we can like ignore that in favor of this pop psychology thing, which is just looking at what you notice. Well, you're kind of doing the same thing of, of looking at a big sample and making a broad assumption. Well, you're, but you're looking at the biggest sample. You're looking at just about every civilization across history. Where are the women who behave in ways that are more typical of men? And that's what it is societally. How can you look at a group of men and say they typically have a smaller range of emotions and then leap to that's hardwired when like from their youngest ages, every time they show big emotions, they have people around them who shut it down. You're going to get to a point where you no longer have access to the information that you're having big emotions. I don't know about that. I think that there's an element of emotional regulation that is tantamount to adulthood. I have to tell you that probably most women around me would agree that most men that we encounter don't have a huge amount of control over their big emotions. This is something that we encounter across all different kinds of educational backgrounds, socioeconomic, like wherever that's coming in. So let's hold on. Let's, cause yeah, we are going to go off on a tangent, yeah. but, but yeah. this is a great segue into part of the I, challenge. I, I feel a lot of what you're saying. <laughs> so what we're talking about here, you just said like, oh, control of emotions. If you think about like an oppressive regime, <laughs> what kind of happens when you push down on the people, right? Like I'm controlling them. It's like, no, the fuck you aren't because what inevitably happens? Modern psychology does not seek to control emotion. Modern psychology seeks to understand emotion, mm -hmm. to accept it and respond to it. So originally what I was thinking for this challenge was to do something with acceptance commitment therapy or cognitive behavioral therapy, because all of these types of therapy first require you to understand and accept how you're feeling. The challenge was to log our emotions and the context around them for mm -hmm. a week. I don't know if you wanna speak first about it, but I made a spreadsheet <laughs> um, <laughs> so here's here were my emotions um, starting last week. So I wrote the time of day, mm -hmm. kind of the mood and a little bit about the context. Mm -hmm. And I wrote the valence of the emotion being like, was it positive, negative? Was it high? Was it low? Basically, emotions can all be graphed on kind of like a X, Y axis of negative, positive emotions, high and low. Like, are you activated or are you kind of low and depressed? And typically the easiest emotion to understand is like a high negative emotion because it drives you insane and you just go, holy fuck, I'm angry or furious, right? The hardest, I think, emotion to grasp would probably be like a positive low or a negative low. Like depression's easy to see when you're in it, but it's really hard to kind of like articulate mm -hmm. what it is. I have like an old dog and so he's always got issues in the morning. And so I wake up in kind of like a negative vibe, I have to then kind of like bring it back. So I journal and then sometimes things will happen and I'm kind of, you know, up and down throughout the day. Like this day, for example, I was excited to edit the podcast. <laughs> I was editing the last episode. And then by the end of the day, I was like, fuck, I was so tired, so irritated. I went from a positive high and I stayed up, 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 and it went all the way over to negative. And then it took me a long time to come down from it. I went to the gym 
and it shifted into a positive low where I was just absolutely exhausted. And after the shower, I just passed out late at night. That's my stuff. I got a positive contact high from looking at your spreadsheet. Oh yeah? You like yeah. spreadsheets? I love spreadsheets. I didn't make one for myself, but just listening to you go through the different valences, you and I approach this completely differently. Could be because I've been raised to not graph emotions. <laughs> Isn't it much more masculine of me to want to graph it? Uh, and you're no, very feminine free flow with this? No, it's, so I'm going to tell you exactly why. So a man wouldn't spend this much time looking at his emotions to save his life. And so the act of graphing it is just more female masturbation. <laughs> <laughs> stupid as fuck. I'm gonna leave that all the way alone. It was awesome. Oh yeah, please don't touch that. Natasha, I like the X Y axis starting point for tracking moods in context. You're talking about where you were going so hard on the positive that one day that it like went all the way over the cliff into negative. And that's uh -huh. so interesting because a huge amount of what impacts how we feel is the state of our body brain machine. So the example that I give here is of a printer. Because why have printers been around for so long and they're still so, so fucking stupid? Why do we have the same problems with printers? They're always going to solve. But you know, when you, if we kind of use an analogy here, okay, the printer itself is the body brain machine. And then the printouts are your thoughts and feelings. If you get a printout and it's smeared or it's missing a color, which you might equate to like a shitty feeling or a shitty thought, you don't immediately go to fuck that printout. You say, well, what's wrong with the machine? But we culturally tend to go straight to fuck the paper. So in that positive all the way to negative thing that you're talking about, sometimes we're having a lot of positive emotion and then something goes off a cliff and you're like, why? Nothing changed. I'm feeling so good. What's going on here? And it's that any intense emotion takes battery. It takes resources, whether it's good or bad. And so what probably happened was you positive emotioned your way all the way into exhaustion. He squirted some battery acid out of your ear. Yeah. And <laughs> you lose your ability to regulate and things just go off the rail, right? You can be having the best day ever, but if you don't eat at all, at some point you're going to get hangry. I printed like a whole page of magenta and then a whole page of cyan and wondered why all my ink mm -hmm. was out. <laughs> and then you start investigating your thought path and like, really, you just need some rest. Or in your case, you say, well, then I went and worked out. So you recalibrated a little bit and created some more energy. Prop my shit up like weekend at Bernie's. <laughs> you must replenish. Yeah. But knowing these things is to me the core of interpersonal intelligence. I'm looking at the state of the body machine, external context, your physical environment, the people around you, as well as like broader context, what's going on in the world or like being in a global pandemic. <laughs> and then we also talk about internal context. And that's where you look at your identity narrative, your inner dialogue, the things that you're telling yourself. I think the, the other component of it is being able to change. Mm -hmm. So when I was doing that editing thing and then I reached that negative point, what actually happened was my husband walked into my office because he was done with work and kind of like expected me to like turn and address him. I was already mad and then that happened and I was like, motherfucker. And so I, I said, I'll be with you in a minute, right? And he went into the kitchen because it's time for dinner. You know, he's hungry, rummaging for food, which is my responsibility. So I go in there and I had a mission. I'm going to get dinner ready and then I'm going to the gym. And he's like, can I get a hug? And I was like, no, thank you. Like I finished everything, walked out the door and I realized, oh, you were a bitch. Like, <laughs> and it was because you're exhausted. So I texted him and I was like, I'm really sorry. I realized I need to go replenish myself. I overworked myself today and 
I then had to kind of remedy the aftermath that I caused. Yeah. And that's, that's a big part of it is developing that awareness as a practice, whatever it is. One really simple tool I give my clients a lot is a two minute mini meditation. Cause I think we lose a lot of bandwidth in transitions. And so this, the simple tool is just taking two minutes in between things to slow down and notice what you're feeling and how you would like to be feeling. Mm-hmm. You can spend your whole life thinking that you live in the dark because you're facing away from the candle. So a part of it is just making a choice about which way you want to face. And this is where you see everyone at the top of their game has a coach. Professional musicians, professional athletes, CEOs, and all of that cadre, they all have coaches. And a lot of it is to help them with this stuff, whether you call it interpersonal intelligence plus interpersonal intelligence, or you call it emotional intelligence, which is basically the combo platter of those two. That's one of your, if not the biggest predictor of personal contentment and professional success. Because in that moment that you sat in your car and regulated, you were able to change the rest of your day. And you were also able to impact something in your relationship before it got out of control. Something that happens with people who are high performing, people who are putting in their 80 hour weeks, just the fact of making time to consider these things gives you the space to be able to do it. And then when you're thinking about this idea of switching, the ability to shut off that intense drive to get things done is probably almost non-existent, which is why they're working that hard. And so it absolutely takes someone in your position to say, okay, I know you only have this amount of time. We're actually doing something. So you're dedicated to doing stuff, but I'm going to be able to help you to get there because you've turned over that control to do to someone like like me. And I think that's why that's needed. Yeah. I mean, I think there's a little, you know, it sort of depends on what you're doing at really high levels. I think that people do learn to take a lot of this into consideration. I always start with what is your desired outcome? I want to know what next action you want the person that you're interacting with to want to take. And then we back that up one step to say, how does that person or those people need to feel in order to be Mm -hmm. driven to take that next action? And then you take one step back from that, which is how do you need to feel in order to be able to cultivate (laughs) how they need to feel in order to take that next action? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I would say without this space, specifically to dedicate to it and someone who's an acute guide to get there, they might not make as much time for it and they may not be anywhere near as successful. Because at that point, they're only thinking about their own thoughts and they don't have any additional mirror that can reflect some things back and press and nudge in directions that might be favorable. So So. that being said, can we reflect on you at this moment with your challenge? (laughs) Okay, so no graphs, no spreadsheet. I took notes on events and my responses to them over the course of days. I wonder every time I see something that I've crossed out, why am I redacting things? And then this could become like an infinitely recursive solipsistic event. You have to tell Uh, now. You have to tell us about the things you redacted. That's probably the most interesting thing. Yeah. So the first thing I recorded was a fire alarm that went off in my house. And I I told Natasha about this before, but basically I live in a, it's it's a nice old house from the 1800s. Every time we get new tenants, someone figures out that whatever they're going to do to set the alarm off, it's going to be cooking or weed, but they're going to activate the alarm. And so they did. After my Halloween get in at 2.30 in the morning party at about four or so, the alarm goes off while I'm passed out on the couch, barely hitting my first sleep cycle. And at first I'm panicking, okay, where's it going? What's going on? And then I was furious because I know there's nothing happening in this house. My girlfriend and I are in comas and it's gotta be 
one of these motherfuckers. <laughs> so I, I look out in the hallway, it smells a little bit of smoke, and I see the red light flashing, and I'm pretty sure that that is the origin. So I call the fire department, uh, I get us out of the house, where I wait for 10 minutes for those people to show up. Then, like lots and lots of time later, it does turn out that it is that. It's malfunctioning. It's not wired the way that the landlord thought it was wired. And so lots of anger, lots of exhaustion the following day. And I just kind of came to realize, I wrote, everything is more complex than you know. Variables are always hidden. And where another mind is involved, the combinatorial failings of known and unknown variables renders me ignorant, angry at, at the wrong things for the wrong reasons. What's left for me after those are stripped away is embarrassment and shame. But I also gained humility. How often does this happen? More often than I will ever know. Wow. So, that's just me thinking about everything that I thought I knew about this situation was wrong. And I didn't know. And my reaction was powerful. I had to save the house. <laughs> I had to figure out what was going on. I had to rely on other people who didn't have uh, the information they needed to tell me what was going on. So then I said, syllogism needs more from me than I've given. And so does Natasha. I'm very good at responding to emergencies, taking care of others to the point of neglecting myself. And I stopped there because that's, I'm not going to read more than that because that's too emotional. And this is a podcast to not a confessional. <laughs> um, Another one, a mutual friend of ours, Kunal, called me this morning after he asked me how I was doing, and we usually just exchange some silly little thing. Hey, how you doing, my brother? Blah, blah, blah. No, I said I was blah. Blah was all kinds of things for me that are going on personally. And he called me right away. Didn't ask anything else. The phone rang, and we talked for quite a while, and he was there to support. And I have a note here. I say, so much has happened in my life in the last three years, and aside from therapy and a couple of friends that I have made since, I have told no one about many of these things. I haven't asked for help or even an ear. I've isolated myself and I am exiled. Why have I done this? Friends call, I see the phone ringing and I don't answer. Always later, I'll be ready to talk, to reconnect, to let friends be friends. But that time hasn't come. But Kunal reminded me, I can and I must. So um, thank you, Kunal. Mm -hmm. And that was it. Damn. <laughs> Damn, boo. <laughs> so, that was so, intense. That was actually, that was really beautiful and really vulnerable. And you said something in the middle. What is left after the certainty of anger and blame is embarrassment and shame. But I also gained humility. And I mean, that was, that was, that was huge. I think also something that I really want to contribute in my thank you here is that Shame is our biggest obstacle to confidence. I think it's also our biggest obstacle to regulation, to self-regulation. I want my clients to learn how to make friends with their mental monsters so that they're not afraid to go inside their own minds. When you're afraid to go inside your mind, it's really hard to regulate because all of the stuff you need to regulate, all the good stuff, all of the awareness that comes out of it, all of these amazing things that you just said, they come out of that introspection, that looking at your own mind. But when we are blocked by shame, it's undesirable to go there. And one of the most effective ways to process and move through shame is connecting vulnerably to others and sharing your shame with each other. Think about every relationship that's meaningful to you in your life. Those are the people who know your hard shit. 
Mm -hmm. Those are the people mm -hmm. you've shared shame with each other. And so even in just what you did, not just calling out that specific situation, but going through a lot of these really vulnerable things that might feel whatever they feel to you, right? But hard in some way, a lot of them. Oh, yeah. yeah. That's a big personal thank you for me, but I hope also that's a big benefit to anyone listening to the podcast and getting to experience that. Because when you share shit like that, you never know what it unlocks in someone else who's, who's been thinking to themselves this whole time. I thought it was just me because they're so afraid to have that conversation that they're isolating themselves from both their own mind and that conversation with others. Yeah. Yeah. It's funny how we took two different approaches to it because I think I write a lot and I put a lot of that stuff on my sub stack. I have a fucking playlist that I'll listen to when I need to dig deep on something. And I have a series called Friday Feels where I will cut myself open and flay myself for whoever's reading. And so I've been there and I feel like at this point where I'm at, I've seen where I go and I'm, I'm on the other side of observing it and accepting it. And I've moved towards kind of this outcome place where now that I accept what I feel and I'm committed to that feeling, I want to figure out where can I go next? And I want to kind of predict these things and I'm just infinitely curious about them. So don't feel alone, Brett, because I, every time I write something, I feel like, God, why did I do that? And uh, it ain't fun. No, it isn't. There's some element of this that we have known as a species forever, like Greek tragedy, the way that we learned and passed on knowledge and all of that, it was through storytelling. The act of storytelling is not just of benefit to the receiver. In telling mm -hmm. our stories, we also give ourselves the opportunities to assemble our thoughts, to notice our thoughts, to see the connections between our thoughts and our feelings. Yeah. I mean, that's what I say. I write to understand what I'm going through. And I've done that since I was a little girl. I had these big, intense emotions and I didn't know what was going on. And I'd write it out and then I'd look at it and I'd go... Okay. All right. I didn't really understand it, but I was like, at least I can say it's not just in my mind now. It's on paper. It's kind of real. It's kind of tangibilized. I wonder, you know, this whole season we've been talking about quantifying the subjective and we talk sometimes about intersectionality and all these things. And I wonder if there's some way we'll ever be able to kind of make tangible the feelings that we have and quantify them in a real way. That's definitely an interesting question. And I think it has to do with some of what I liked the most in listening to Gardner talk about his, because I was doing some of my own regulating this week and I was like, need to prepare for the podcast. And the kid who's going through this sleep thing where he's sleeping with us right now, just by necessity. And so uh, this weekend he took a nap and I was like, I need a break. And so I was like, okay, I'm, I'm going to do a combo platter. I'm going to find some stuff on YouTube to help me learn about this while I cross-stitch. And cross-stitching, by the way, it's another method of, of processing, by the way. Yes, bitch. <laughs> I mean, find the ways that work for you. That's part of that self-knowledge piece. And one of the things I like the most is that he makes a big point about multiple intelligences itself is not the educational end. He says it is a means to reach a stated goal. 
the examples he gave were a lot about education, where you can have your goals as an educator, whatever those goals may be. And then the ways that you reach those goals can be by taking multiple intelligences into account in how you teach, in how you share knowledge through individualization and pluralization. And I love that because I think that that in a lot of ways, to come back to your question, Natasha, has to do with my relationship to emotion, which is that emotion is not the point in of itself. It is a cue. It is a communication from your body that something needs attention. And it was funny, actually, <laughs> but the example that you gave where you were like, there was a fire alarm that went off. And a lot of times when I'm talking to my clients about this, I'll make this analogy where I say, all negative emotions are a form of fear. The example that I give is imagine somebody who has like a burglar alarm, the burglar alarm going off, that's your emotion, that your negative emotion, right? It's loud, it's blaring, it's taking a lot of your attention. You know, if somebody was trying to have a calm, rational conversation with you next to you while you're standing in front of the burglar alarm that's going off, it's not going to happen, right? You're like, you're not going to be able to take it in. The same thing is true when we're in that emotion, right? But the point of the burglar alarm is not for you to go stand in front of it and listen to the alarm, which is what a lot of us think we're supposed to do with our emotions. We just go and we're like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to sit in it and I'm going to soak in it and I'm going to get all, I'm going to rub it on the skin. Sometimes we need some of that just to be able to identify it if we are coming from a lack of familiarity. But beyond that, the point of the alarm is to give you information. So when you go look at the alarm, maybe it says this Fire. door is open and you're like, okay, so now let me see what information that alarm was trying to point me to. It was trying to alert me to something. And it's the same with our emotions. What is it trying to alert us to? So this idea of, is there a way to quantify and make tangible the emotions that we have? I have no idea. Maybe there is, but I don't know that it's the point. I think the point is more for us to learn about our emotions and understand that they are a signal to help us cut through the noise. And it's not the signal itself that matters. It's what it's pointing to. If all of us are ending up with outcomes and outputs that are better as a result of this knowledge and this ability, I think that's the making emotions tangible. Yeah. The emotions are every bit as important as the kinds of things that are going on that we think of as the rational mind, because they're telling us things that maybe the rational mind can't pick up on, but maybe it could a little bit more if it were only attuned to the things that are swarming underneath conscious awareness. 100%. And this is where a huge amount of decision-making comes in. And that's all life is, by the way, decision-making. It's decisions in a row. That's what being alive is. And so every time you make a decision yeah. in your, I know, right? Don't, sorry, don't mean to totally overwhelm you there. I had a, a mentor once who used the analogy that are some conscious is like a supercomputer from the future in terms of like memory and processing power and it's always on and massive database like tons of space all this kind of stuff and compared to our working mind which is like a calculator from the 70s and so <laughs> not even texas instrument and so when you make a decision in milliseconds, microseconds, your subconscious is accessing every relevant experience you've ever had in order to make a prediction. That's what it's trying to do. It's trying to make a prediction, right? Where does it put that? It can't put it into your conscious mind because your conscious mind, I think most studies have shown your conscious mind can hold three or four things max at a time and not like three or four complicated things, like maybe one complicated thing and walking and chewing gum and you might still choke on your gum. 
Um, <laughs> you know, and so it can't, the subconscious mind has no place to put all that data. And so our beautiful brain body machine, our integrated ecosystem has come up with a way to sort of solve that problem, which is to give you basically like a summary in the form of an emotion, a gut instinct, a chemical cue, right? But that's only the first part of the decision-making process. The second part is post-rationalization, which is where you consciously explain to yourself the decision that your subconscious has already recommended, right? And this, it, it exists for a reason, this two-part process, because if you have, like, let's say you had trauma when you were younger, maybe you, you lived in a household where with a family member that was verbally abusive or something like that, right? Well, now maybe you're a professional in the working world and you're trying to decide whether to speak up about something that you saw at work that's, that definitely does not align with your values. Your subconscious is probably going to give you a summary based on your past experiences because that's the, right, the data, the quality of the data is the quality of the database, right? You get out of it what you put into it. So it's going to probably tell you something like, don't do it, shut it down, don't speak to truth to power. That's going to get you hurt. Historically, that has gotten you hurt. But who you are now may not agree with that. That may not be the biggest benefit to you. That may not be something that aligns with your values. And so you have to make a new choice. And that's where the post-rationalization can be of benefit to you. However, if you're not aware of this process or how it works or how you could leverage it, you very often receive that gut instinct and use the post-rationalization part to explain yourself out of something that's a good decision for you. <laughs> Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Right, and the anxiety is going to impact you either mm -hmm. way. So, 100%. what are you going to do? One hundred percent. So, there's a lot of interesting experiments of people with frontal lobe damage, mm -hmm. where you know certain parts of the frontal lobe, if they're damaged, people are highly irascible or anxious or emotive, and then other parts they're completely apathetic or indifferent. And I wonder how these people integrate that kind of emotional information with the current context. I wonder if they make better decisions or worse decisions, because obviously we know the frontal lobe is all about decision-making, but I agree with you in that emotions, not only do they inform our decisions, but I feel like they're so integrated that we could never remove them from the process. Because like you said, we're all just a bunch of synapses firing and everything is a reaction to something else. Yeah. What even is an emotion? It's so heavily integrated into everything we think it's a whole and system do. system of things. It's not a thing. It's a system of things doing something simultaneously. And this is why I use working mind or conscious mind instead of rational mind, because that rational mind segregation that kind of comes out of the age of reason and all of that, that's where that stuff started. I think it does us a really deep disservice when we inherently relate to our emotions as not rational, as illogical, versus our thinking mind as rational and logical, we're really missing how this system works. Because the emotional instinct, that's all based on literal experiences. It's good data. And your conscious mind in some ways is less logical or less rational because it doesn't have the big picture ability that a lot of your other systems do. Well, I think the computational mind is doing something to explain the decisions that are already made. Talking about the rationality of emotion as a complex, simultaneous processing system to which we have no access until it's already begun processing things is exactly the right way to think about it. It is rational. It is also computing. 
And I wonder how much sway we really have over the decisions that have already been made. I think it matters how much work you've done on unraveling your emotions and how much work you've done on, like in cognitive behavioral therapy, the biggest thing they tell you is to do thought stopping techniques. If you're this type of person who kitchen sinks everything, like one horrible thing happens, then everything horrible happens. You have to learn how to stop. Then once you learn how to stop, then you can start to roll the tape back. Mm -hmm. This is part of acceptance commitment therapy as well. And kind of understand then physiological cues mm -hmm. that help you to figure out where were you? Where was your mind when this triggered? So then once you learn the patterns of your own emotions, you may trust more in that logic that you've gained than the original emotional reaction. That's a, a topic in and of itself. Well, so but maybe I can frame it a little bit differently which is that a dysregulated brain is inherently illogical. <laughs> a dysregulated brain where your emotions are going all over the place, that brain is the most illogical. Your brain thinks you're in a threat and so it acts accordingly. It's not that emotions are illogical and thinking is logical. It's that you need to learn how to regulate yourself before you start assessing the emotion. And so it's more like your total state that makes it rational or unrational. Does that make sense? Yes. I fucking love you, Colleen. <laughs> <laughs> it's so funny because I met Colleen through our mutual bestie, Emily, and she was like, you'll love Colleen. And then we met on the night of the election in 2016, uh -huh. which was wild. <laughs> we had dinner and I kept being like, you know what? I think something's going on. And she's like, no, no, we just we'll, we'll keep watching the numbers. Keep watching. And then it was, and then it ended with me and you sitting on the stoop outside your apartment in Queens. And we were just like hugging and crying. And we were just like, we had full Trump derangement syndrome at the time. But we bonded and you gave me this awesome book. I remember I still like kind of keep it nearby me, but it was just so representative of your value. I just, I love you. I love having you on and thank you so much for everything you've done. I highly recommend. You better get you one of these over here because... <laughs> and thank you so much for the invite. I was so excited, you know, because it's it's exactly the kind of conversation that I'm dying to have more and more and more of. And I love being in these conversations, not just because for me, they're super rewarding and intellectually stimulating, but because I really genuinely feel that this shit matters. You know, you this kind of stuff, you're giving people tools and information to actually change their lives, not some shitty self-help message or professional who's actually trying to work you towards dependence because that's the like model mm -hmm. that their like whole sales path depends on. And actually you can scale that up and say, the system that we're in demands that we do not believe in ourselves because if we do, we do not need the products or the ideology that maintain the power structures of the system. Right? I would agree. And with so that. when you're when we're sharing this kind of information, this to me, I try to coach towards independence. I want you to not need me. I'm always available and happy to help, especially, you know, when it after after that initial stuff, if it comes to like, you know, tactical things like sharing knowledge, that's awesome. But sharing knowledge and trying to be in charge of someone else's regulation are very different things. Yes. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah, I agree. There's, yeah, get you a therapist too. Um, <laughs> yep. um, so, Just watch uh, David Goggins' videos. If you watch that guy run around, that, that's it. That's therapy right there. David Goggins is absolutely insane. That is a pathology that um, I don't think we could address in one podcast. <laughs>
Thanks so much for listening. For more resources, including show notes, bonus content, and behind-the-scenes footage, make sure you're subscribed to our newsletter at theoryyang.io forward slash newsletter.